Well, I have a, a tradition I'd like to share with you this morning. Uh, ten seconds before I preach, each week, I do three things. This will come of a, a bit of a surprise to some of you. Uh, the first thing I do is I open my Bible and I, and I look at a photograph that I have uh, uh, printed in my Bible of John Rogers. Uh, John Rogers was the first martyr to burn at the stake under Mary Tudor. And so the reason I look at that photograph is uh, sometimes being a pastor is difficult. And I realize that whenever it gets difficult, it's never quite that difficult. And then I turn the page and I read a citation inscribed in my Bible by my favorite living preacher, Dr. Stephen Lawson, who said this, Now is the time for the strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministry. The third thing I do is I carry out the practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who each week when he would make his ascent to the pulpit, he would re repeat to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, his pulpit was much more elevated than this one is, and so he had more steps to climb, and he had more time to contemplate that. I can get about three I believe in the Holy Spirit's in. And the reason he did that and the reason I do it is very important. It's to remember, to recall that every preacher is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And the three things that I do each week become especially significant on this day is I have a message I have prepared for you as we move away from the Gospel of John only for one week that I believe uh, the people of God need to hear. It's a message I believe that I needed to prepare to share with you. And so I want to invite you to spend a few moments in prayer with me before we open the Word of God. Father, these are perilous days, not only in the world, but in the United States of America. There are decisions being handed down. There are worldviews that are being propagated. There are teachers and professors in schools and universities who are, um, have a, a huge effect on students. God, there are even seminary professors who are filling the minds of, of young men with uh, theological error. And so wherever we uh, cast our gaze, we see compromise. We see that the Word of God is being cast aside and the opinion of man is being elevated over the Word of God and in, in place of the Word of God. And so on this day, I pray that you would grant me strength as you have placed this message before us. God, I pray that you would encourage the people of God. I pray that you would strengthen us according to the riches of your grace, that you would enable us as your people to lift a high and holy standard, to never compromise the truth, but to always remember to love people around us, despite their worldview, despite their ideology, despite the practices that they engage in. Help us to do it all for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and move this fan just a little bit. It feels really good, but I can already sense my Bible flipping to other portions that I don't need it to turn to. Let me begin this morning by saying that every nation has an assortment of pivotal events that mark turning points. And turning points that influence culture, politics, worldview, and religions, to name only a few. And as we think about the United States of America, some of these 
pivotal moments, some of these pivotal events include things like the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. There's an assassination that changed our nation. Or the assassination in 1963 of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Other pivotal events have occurred in the United States of America and around the world that affect us, things like the Vietnam War or the Watergate scandal. I'll discipline myself not to talk about the other scandals and the other gates. And then, of course, we all remember 9-11, a critical turning point in the life of our nation. The turning point may take place as well with the swing of a gavel. And one such turning point took place in 1973 as the Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand. The most recent turning point, as you're well aware, occurred a few days ago on June the 29th, 2015. And on that day, as I shared with my wife, we woke up in a different nation. In a historic move, the Supreme Court rendered a decision by a vote of five to four, which rendered same-sex marriage a right for all Americans. That is to say, the highest court in the land legalized same-sex marriage. If you're like me, you had to work through, and perhaps you're still working through, a whole range of emotions, including anger, disillusionment, discouragement, apprehension about the future. And after you cycled through this range of emotions, you ultimately need to come to a practical place. I ultimately need to come to a practical place by answering this question. Now what? Now what? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my church? What does this mean for my career? What does this mean for me in America? What does it mean for my country? And the dilemma we face as a nation, which comes as a result of the Supreme Court decision, really is nothing new. For the people of God have faced seasons of adversity and compromise throughout redemptive history. If you turn your attention to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, we all know that the people of God, the Israelites, were oppressed by Pharaoh and forced to work as slaves. In Judges chapter 21, the people of God lived, um, not only in chapter 21, but throughout the course of the whole book, they lived in the midst of idol worshipers who did what was evil in their own eyes. And then, as you know, the people of God throughout that book also committed horrible, horrible sin. The people of God have lived under the thumb of evil dictators, men like Nebuchadnezzar, who mandated the worship of an image made of gold. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 6, we read read that Nebuchadnezzar said, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Of course, we know the response, and we'll look at this in a moment, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Moreover, in the book of Habakkuk, we realize that the people of God were taken into captivity by a rival nation who was a cruel, a ruthless, and an impetuous people, as Habakkuk 1 reports. Then turn your attention to the days of the New Testament. In the New Testament days, the people of God lived in the shadow of evil rulers like King Herod. 
Moving forward, the first century taught that Christ followers to live under intense persecution. They were persecuted by brutal dictators like Nero. One of my favorite church historians who recently went to be with the Lord, Dr. Bruce Shelley, he describes the first century believer as the one who was fundamentally different. I like that. He said this, Men always view with suspicion people who are different. Conformity, not distinctiveness, is the way to a trouble-free life. Conformity, not distinctiveness, is the way to a trouble-free life. He, he continues, So the more early Christians took their faith seriously, the more they were in danger of a crowd reaction. Shelley continues, Thus, simply by living according to the teachings of Jesus... The Christian was in const, a constant outspoken condemnation of the pagan way of life. It was not that the Christian went about criticizing and condemning and disapproving, nor was he consciously self-righteous and superior. It was simply that the Christian ethic in itself was a criticism of the pagan lifestyle. In the third century, Emperor Decius, 249 to 251, he only ruled for a few short years. He made Caesar worship mandatory for every race and nation, with the single exception of the Jews. Shelley reports that on a certain day in every year, the Roman citizen had to come to the temple of Caesar, and he had to burn a, a pinch of incense there, and he would have to say, Caesar is Lord. When he had done that, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had done so. After a man had burned his pinch of incense and acknowledged that Caesar is Lord, he could go about and worship any god that he chose, so long as the worship did not affect public decency and order. If a man refused to carry out the ceremony of acknowledging Caesar, he would automatically be branded as a traitor and a revolutionary. Thus, Christian worship and Caesar met, as you might guess, head on. And the one thing that no Christian would ever say was, Caesar is Lord. And so for the Christian, Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the universe. Shelley says that had the Christians been willing to burn that pinch of incense and to formally say Jesus is Lord, they could have gone on to worship any deity they chose. That is why Rome regarded them as a band of potential revolutionaries threatening the very existence of the empire. Now move forward from the 3rd century to uh, the reign of Mary Tudor, 1,300 years later. You recall that Mary Tudor, we know her as Bloody Mary, she is the one directly responsible for the execution of one of my heroes, John Rogers. Please know that John Rogers was burned in front of his house, in front of his wife and children. Bloody Mary, we call her. She continued to have a hand in nearly 300 Protestants who were burned at the stake. Why? for radical faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this short survey only scratches the surface. Suffice it to say, suffering is nothing new for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is this, as we turn our attention to 2015, 
In light of the Supreme Court's decision a few days ago to legalize same-sex marriage, how then shall we as Christ's followers live? The question is posed, I believe, in a more general way in the book of Psalms. If you would turn there with me, Psalm chapter 11. And in Psalm chapter 11, if you would look with me at verse 3, the psalmist asks a very interesting question. He says, If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? And that's the title of the message this morning, If the Foundations Are Destroyed. As Christians, I believe that it is vitally important that we approach the Supreme Court decision that was recently handed down with a humble, God-centered, Bible-centered, gospel-centered attitude. And so how shall we as Christ followers respond? The sermon this morning is exceedingly simple. It is an outline that I hope will resonate with you. It's an outline that I hope you will be able to remember in the days ahead. And it is arranged in the following manner. First, I want to uh, pose three questions. I want to pose three questions. And then second, I want to propose three very important responses. And time prevents us from tackling this subject in a comprehensive manner. But I trust that you will walk away this morning encouraged and emboldened and filled with gospel resolve as we move forward into the marketplace of ideas. Because here's one option we simply don't have. We cannot do like the, like the monastics. We cannot do like the monks and run away and hide. I'll be honest, the first thing I thought of when I heard of this decision is, I'm out of here. I don't know how, how many of you thought that? Just, just send me to another country. Why, so you can go to another country and have another Supreme Court make the same decision? And so our option is not to flee. Jesus said in John chapter 17, my prayer is not that you take them from the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus continues to pray that prayer for his people today. And so look with me in your notes, if you would, as we pose the first of three questions. The first question is this, exactly what are the foundations of the Christian faith that pertain to this issue? The psalmist asked the penetrating question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so we ask exactly what are the foundations of the Christian faith that pertain to this specific issue. The first foundational matter concerns the authority of God's Word. The authority of God's Word. Now, at Christ Fellowship, we hold to, with all of our might, what we refer to as the sola scriptura principle. That is the Latin phrase that was popularized in the 16th century by the Protestant reformers that means Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Here is the statement that we embrace. We believe the Bible is God's absolute truth for all people, for all times. It is our final authority for discerning truth. And so it is the Word of God, you see, that is our highest authority and informs us about how we live, about how we are to conduct our lives, and about how we approach a thrice-holy God. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, there's a very important question that addresses this particular issue when we think about the authority of God's Word. The question is this, what is the Word of God? Answer, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. And so the second foundational matter is one that is also addressed in the Word of God. It is a matter that is clearly spelled out to us. This is a matter, as we look at number two, that is not up for discussion. This is a matter that is not up for debate. I remember it wasn't too many years ago where Jareen and I were invited to interview at a church in Spokane. This was my dream church. It was a large church with a good facility and a large staff. And as I sat down for lunch with this large pastoral team, the youth pastor looked at me and he said, Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? <laughs> I thought, Come again? I said, Yeah, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He says, Oh, he goes, The pastor that precede, that precede, was to precede you, I didn't go there, by the way, and you'll know why in a minute. He said, oh, we used, to, we used to argue all the time about inerrancy because the previous pastor was a staunch believer in inerrancy. This youth pastor denied inerrancy. <laughs> and I was not that old at the time, but I said to him something like this, young man, <laughs> that was fun. Young man, if I come here, there will be no discussion about inerrancy. There will be no debate about inerrancy. If you don't believe in inerrancy, we can't work together. You see what I mean about there's, there's no debate, there's no discussion on this matter. Now, when it comes to this issue, it's the same. God's Word has clearly spoken. The second foundational matter is this, that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. Period. Not up for debate. This is what God has sovereignly ordained. Marriage consists of one man and one woman, both of whom bear the image of God and stand equal before a holy God, yet maintain distinct roles. Hold your finger in Psalm chapter 11 and look with me briefly at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, where Jesus here does something very interesting. First, he affirms the teaching of the Old Testament. And then we recognize very clearly that a marital union is once again between a man and a woman. He says in Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is something that couples who go through a session of premarital counseling, I should say six or seven sessions of premarital counseling with my wife and me, hear until they're tired of hearing it. It goes like this, leave, cleave, and become one flesh. 
leave, cleave, and become one flesh. That's the mandate that we find in sacred scripture. And so the union of a man and a woman in marriage was designed by God, whose ultimate intention is that the marital union between a man and a woman who are image bearers and equal before a holy God, yet have distinct roles, would do this. They would glorify the great God of the universe. Men, when you stood before your wife and looked your wife in the eye and said, I do, until death do us part. And you became man and woman. You became husband and wife before God, before your pastor, before your, your witnesses, the group of men and the group of women that supported you, and before the church family. You became man and wife so that you might reflect the triune God. And that's a heavy responsibility that I place especially on men. Is marriage men, it is our responsibilities that our marital union reflects the glory of the living God. The Bible defines the roles that each partner will carry out. And we don't have time to look again comprehensively at this. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And these are scriptures that I would encourage you to mark and to revisit again and again. Men, as you examine your roles before God, and women, as you examine your roles before God. I want to first look at the role of the woman that emerges in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And while you're turning, be, be prepared, because for some of you, if you have never heard this, this may sound just countercultural. It may sound different than, than what you thought the role of a woman should entail. But Genesis 2.18 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a what? I will make a helper fit for him. What is the most important thing a wife can do for her husband? Be a helpmate. It's an amazing thing because I've talked to women on both sides of this issue. There are many women in our culture who look at that and say that's offensive and it's demeaning. The reason they believe it's demeaning is they have forgotten the foundational reality that she is a woman made in the image of God, equal with her husband, yet with a distinct role to play. And so it's a wonderful thing for a woman to be her husband's helpmate. Then look at the role very quickly of the man. In Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, don't miss it, to work it and keep it. That is to say, he is called to a ministry of service and leadership. That is to say, the man is the leader of the home. I want you to think for a moment, if you, if you can just imagine, homosexual marriage. Are you with me? The man is the leader in the home. I hope some of you are asking this. Which man? How does that work? The man is the leader of the home. And so a man and a woman come together equal before God, yet distinct, you see, in roles. Now, I want to move forward and ask a second question. 
Where then are the cracks in the foundation? If the foundational issues that we are concerned about this morning concern the authority of God's word and men and women who come together in marital union, where do the cracks emerge? It probably won't surprise you when I tell you that the first crack or the first sign of erosion in the foundation is the questioning and the compromise of Scripture. Now, the questioning and the compromise of Scripture did not begin a week ago Friday, did it? When those five justices voted yes in favor of homosexual marriage, that is not the day that questioning God began. When did that begin? It began back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 with statements like this. Did God really say? And so this is a phenomenon, this questioning and compromising of Scripture that has been with us throughout redemptive history. One of my favorite writers, a man who has influenced me so much, so very much, is Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Some of you have been influenced by him as well. And young people, I, I tell college students that every college student needs to read Francis Schaeffer. And I suppose I could say this publicly. One day I, I hope to teach at a Bible college or seminary. I think that's down the road where I see me going as I get older. Well, get ready. Because if I teach in Bible college or seminary, it really doesn't matter what the classes will involve. My students will be reading Francis Schaeffer. He is as relevant today as he was in the 60s and the 70s. Now, this is interesting because... Over 30 years ago, Dr. Schaefer wrote these words. 30 years ago. There hardly could be a more fitting description of our own culture today. Bent on the pursuit of autonomous freedom, freedom from any restraint, and especially from God's truth and moral absolutes, our culture has set itself on a course of self-destruction. Autonomous freedom... How the voices of our days cry out. I must be free to kill the child in the womb. I must be free to desert my husband or wife and abandon my children. I must be free to commit shameless acts with those of my own sex. Schaefer continues. He says, here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. Schaefer called it true truth, which I love. I remember the first time I read his notion of true truth. It just kind of made the hair on my arm stand up. True truth. He continues, there is only one word for this phenomenon, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. First, there has been an accommodation on Scripture, so that many who call themselves evangelicals hold a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of all the Bible teaches. And second, there has been accommodation on the issues, with no clear stand being taken even on matters of life and death." And so the first crack that we need to be aware of in the foundation that the psalmist addresses in Psalm 11 is a a questioning and a compromising of Scripture. There's a second crack in the foundation I want you to see, which concerns the redefining of marriage. And when marriage was redefined in one 
stroke of the pen, or rather in one smack of the gavel, everything changed in this nation. The majority argument expressed by Justice Kennedy is that the right of same-sex couples to marry is based on individual autonomy. You remember Schaefer? Autonomous freedom. Autonomous freedom. And so individual autonomy is the rationale. The court has not only ordered that same-sex couples be allowed to marry, it has fundamentally redefined marriage itself. As Chief Justice Roberts stated in his dissent, quote, the majority's decision is an act of the will, not a legal judgment. The Chief Justice accused the majority of, quote unquote, judicial policymaking that endangers our democratic form of government. And the court today not only overlooks our country's entire history and tradition, but actively repudiates it, preferring to live only in the heady days of here and now, the Chief Justice asserted. Over and over, the majority exalts the rule of the judiciary in delivering social change, he says. And then one of my personal favorite justices, Justice Scalia, he offers these stunning words of judgment. He says, quote, a system of government that makes the people subordinate to a committee of nine unelected lawyers does not deserve to be called a democracy, close quote. And so we see that there is a redefinition of marriage afoot, which leads us to see that there's a crack in the foundation. Third, I want you to see another crack briefly, and that is in the area of biblical ethics. And I'm sure if you're thinking clearly this morning, you will see that each one of these points and subpoints is either a sermon or a sermon series. And so we're, we're really, we're, we're throwing the rock, we're skimming it across the top of the lake this morning. So briefly, the crack in biblical ethics. Al Mohler put it this way, president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, in essence, sin is all that is in opposition to God. Sin defies God. It violates his character, his law, and his covenant. It fails, as Luther put it, to let God be God. Sin aims to dethrone God and strives to place someone or something else upon his rightful throne. Well, we all know what got placed on that throne a week ago Friday. And so biblical ethics is compromised. Biblical ethics is one of the cracks that we see emerging in the foundation. I want to ask a third question. I want to ask, what are the consequences then of an eroding foundation? What are the consequences of a cracked foundation? And in the time that we have this morning, I want to share six consequences, and all of them very serious consequences. First, there's the consequence of the breakdown of the traditional marriage and family. It doesn't take much of an imagination to imagine if we move into the future as Americans in this country, what will happen to our country if the family unit continues to be broken down? One writer puts it this way, to deny the truth of what it means to be male and female as taught in the scriptures is to deny something essential about the nature of man and 
about the character of God and his relationship to man. He continues, the idea of absolute autonomous freedom from God's boundaries flows into the idea of equality without distinction, which flows into the denial of what it truly means to be male and female, which flows into abortion and homosexuality and destruction of the home and family and ultimately to the destruction of our culture. Close quote. There's a second consequence, and that is a new pathway to autonomy. Schaefer warned us about this, this autonomous freedom. Well, now that thousands and thousands of men and women have autonomous freedom, here's my question. Where does autonomous freedom lead? It leads to new pathways of autonomy. And I believe that the majority decision that was handed down a few days ago opens the door to polygamy. Think about this. A man can marry a man. A woman can marry a woman. Why then could a man not have three wives? Why then could a a woman not have four husbands? Nothing you see logically or morally or ethically based on the decision that was handed down would prohibit such a decision. And then use your imagination. It can get worse from there. The Kennedy opinion opens a wide door, says one, that basically invites looming demands for the legalization of polygamy. Can you imagine in the days ahead as members of the body of Christ, can you imagine a a pastor and a team of elders having to sit down with a man who has four wives who wants to join the church? It'll never happen. Not at this church. But it will happen at other churches. And so we must draw the line in the sand, must we not? Number three, there's another consequence, and that is the open celebration of sin. We've seen it over the last several days. As men and women parade the streets, as men and the women shake their fists in the air, as the intellectual men and women, instead of celebrating in the streets, will write articles and write blog posts. Some are writing books as we now speak, but Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 warns us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. My friends, that is the United States of America. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. There's a fourth consequence, and that is the erosion of religious liberty. The erosion of religious liberty. Justice Clarence Thomas warned in his dissent of, quote-unquote, ruinous consequences for religious liberty. Justice Samuel Leto stated bluntly that the decision would, quote, be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy, close quote. And it has only been, what, eight or nine days and since the decision has been handed down, and we're already seeing it. We've already seen this take place where if you're a Christian who says, I can't go with homosexuality. I don't believe in homosexuality. And most of, well, if you say that it's a sin, you'll be accused of being a bigot. You'll be accused of being intolerant. and You'll be cast aside. And so the erosion of religious liberty is at stake. Number five, I believe a consequence will be a marginalization of the gospel. 
a marginalization of the gospel. Mark Dever, the pastor of Capital City Church in Washington, D.C., says it like this. When the authority of Scripture is undermined, the gospel will not too long be acknowledged. And it's very interesting as we put all the pieces of this issue together is if the authority of God's word is a crack in the foundation and continues to, to shrivel up and continues to erode in that foundation, I believe Dever is right that the gospel will not long be acknowledged. There's a sixth consequence, and it's the most serious of all, is there will be eternal Consequences, And this is what our homosexual friends and family members do not want to hear. And let me say publicly, as I shared with the men this morning as we prayed, I have several homosexual friends. I have family members who are homosexuals. And so this is not a, a matter that I speak from, uh, from the ivory tower or behind the desk and, and having no relationship with people. Rather, I myself know and love homosexuals. But here is what they need to hear. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 8 says, Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so there are the three questions that I place before you, but I want to move forward. If you can transition in your mind, and I want to make three very broad proposals. I want to make some general responses, if you will. And I trust that if I have demonstrated effectively that the foundations are in fact eroding in light of this tragic development a few days ago, I would like to make three proposals that will... Lord willing, serve us well as we move into the future as the people of God. The first is this. I want to encourage you to make a crucial commitment. The first proposal is that we as the people of God would make a crucial commitment. And here is the commitment. That we uphold the biblical portrait of marriage between a man and a woman. This morning, I feel like we are a little bit under the gun with a time crunch, but I want to have you write down the name of a book. This is a book that was published about two months ago. I see the look in some of your eyes. Uh-oh, here we go, another book. This is the best book I have ever read that addresses the matter of homosexuality. Brand new, written by Kevin DeYoung. The title of the book is, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It is a book that is laced with grace. It is a book that is kind-hearted and gentle. It is a book that is empathetic, but it is a book that never once compromises the truth of God's Word. What Kevin DeYoung does in the book is he talks about the biblical portrait of marriage, and he will provide for you several arguments that help you to walk through and see that this is God's appointed way for a man and a woman to come together. Hear this, no court, no court has the authority to redefine what God has sovereignly established. And so let me challenge you on this day, on July 5th, 2015, young people and those who are veterans of the Christian faith, I make this commitment, I will never compromise the Christian faith. I will uphold the biblical portrait of marriage between one man and one woman. 
There's a second proposal I would lay before you. And that is that we not only make a crucial commitment, but we model the gospel. We model the gospel. You've probably seen it online. You've probably seen it in the marketplace of ideas. And you have perhaps have even seen it on television. Christians are notorious overreactors. Are they not? Christians are notorious for being bombastic. And I hope this morning in my passion and my zeal to preach this message that you don't hear a, a preacher that is a bombastic preacher. I hope you hear truth-centered grace-saturated. I hope there's a balance there. But in modeling the gospel, we make this commitment. We resolve to enter the marketplace of ideas with truth and grace. You see, the mistake that some believers make is this. I resolve to enter the marketplace of ideas with truth. And what do you do? You get in your your German-made tank And you ride through every village you can and destroy that village with the truth. Truth never destroys. Truth lifts up. Truth builds. Truth edifies. Truth encourages. And so we march around in the marketplace of ideas with truth and grace. How do we do that? And this is probably the most practical portion of this message today. There are several things I want to commend to you. Ways that we can model the gospel The first one you may not like very much. In fact, I don't know if I like it very much. But it is a principle that surfaces in the Word of God. And so this morning, we will all walk out of this facility liking this truth. Here it is. We model the gospel by paying due respect to the Supreme Court. We model the gospel by paying due respect to the Supreme Court. Say, where do you get that? Romans chapter 13 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That includes the Supreme Court. That includes Congress. That includes the President of the United States. That includes our our city mayor and our governor and our, our police officers in this community. Paul continues, for there is no authority except from God. And those exist, those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Peter says that this this way in 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so we model the gospel by paying due respect to all the authority structures that God has sovereignly placed before us. Number two, we also model the gospel by disobeying any decision or legislation that is in conflict with God's word. Do you like that one better? (laughs) In the Old Testament, I alluded to King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar was the authority figure in Daniel's life, And in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the rest of God's people, that is the authority figure that God had placed there. And he commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down, as we saw a moment ago, to the golden statue. Notice their response in Daniel 3.18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
You say, how does that relate to homosexual marriage? If the day ever comes when the Supreme Court or any authority over us says to me as a pastor, you will marry two men, my response will be, I will not marry two men. Ever. You will marry two women. The response will be, I will never marry two women. You will marry a man who desires to have six wives. I will never marry a man who desires six wives. Now, in the early days of the church, the Sanhedrin commanded the apostles to do what? Stop the preaching. Stop the preaching. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Notice the response of the apostles. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In Acts 5, 28, we read, we strictly charge you to not teach in this name, yet here you are, you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us? But Peter and the apostles answered, but we must obey God rather than men. It reminds me of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, as you know, was, was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was sent to a British prison for over 11 years. And he was told, even as he had a daughter who was born blind, he needed to be there for his daughter. That girl needed her daddy. And he was told, if you will just agree not to preach the gospel, we'll let you out. And he said, no can do. And so he spent over 11 years in that British prison. And guess how God used that time in that little jail cell? He wrote the second best-selling book of all time. Pilgrim's Progress. And I don't know about you, but he's used it mightily in my life. He used it mightily in the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who it is documented read Pilgrim's Progress over 100 times in his brief 54 years on this earth. We model the gospel by disobeying any decision or legislation that is in conflict with God's word. Number three, and I hope you hear this principle Loud and clear, and I hope you hear the heart of a shepherd, and I think you'll agree we can all stand to do much better on this particular principle. I know I can. Is we model the gospel by reaching out and loving the homosexual community. We model the gospel by reaching out and loving the homosexual community. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? And I just want to share from my heart a moment on this matter because I think that somewhere along the way, I don't know when it happened or why it happened, but as the, the church, somewhere along the way, we, we elevated the sin of homosexuality as the big one. It's the really bad one, right? How many of you can understand what I'm saying here? That's, that's the biggie. Oh, boy, I can't believe that person's a homosexual. And you think in your finer moments, in your moments of objectivity, what about the sin of greed? What about the sin of selfishness? What about the sin of pride? What about the sin of lying? Those are the things that we just kind of pass off as the small sins, but those sins are just as heinous and evil as the sin of homosexuality. Notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Stop there. Notice what Paul does. He includes homosexuality in a list of sins, and he he sandwiches it right in the middle. It's not as if he says, this is the big sin. It's not as if he's categorizing sins. He says, these are all sins worthy of the wrath of God. And Steve Nams read from Colossians 3, where we are told that these sins make us, put us in a position of being under the wrath of God. Now, in a group of this size this morning, it would not surprise me at all if there were a handful or even more men or women or young men and young women who are struggling with homosexuality. Here is the hope that you must see this morning. Look at verse 11. Paul says this, And such were some of you. I saw an interview just last night, Dr. John MacArthur on Larry King Live with a fairly famous actor. He is the actor that played the the role on the end of the spear, a Christian movie about the missionaries who were martyred, Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim Elliot, and some of the other missionaries that slipped my, their names slipped my mind. But this young man who is a homosexual is sitting with John MacArthur, and his essential argument is, I was born this way, I can't help it. And MacArthur was so kind and so gracious, and trying with all his might to give him hope to help him to see that he can be forgiven of this particular sin. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Who was justified? Who was sanctified? Who was forgiven of all their sins? Sexual, immoral people, homosexuals, liars, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they received forgiveness because they they ran to the cross and they said, God, I have committed cosmic treason. I have violated your holy law. I have said, I've made excuses. One of the big ones has been, I was born this way. I can't help it. Can you imagine a swindler saying, I was born this way. I can't help it. Can you imagine a liar saying, I was born this way? I can't help it. Each of us is born in sin. We are dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1 says. But there is grace and peace and forgiveness that is found in turning to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we model the gospel by reaching out to the homosexual community. Let me remind you once again. That homosexuals, as men and women, are equal with each other, image bearers before a holy God. Every homosexual is an image bearer of God. Some of you are aware of some of the the horrible events of the last 20 or 30 years. You think of Matthew Shepard, a young man who was a homosexual, and what they did to that poor man. Anyone who treats a homosexual in such a way... That is an equally heinous sin. And so what do we do as the, the, the people of God? Is we treat 
every homosexual as an image bearer of God who is created with worth and value and dignity. There is a document entitled, Here We Stand. How many of you know why I'd be instantly attracted to that document? Reformation students. Martin Luther said, Here I stand, I can do no other. So I saw Here I Stand, I thought, i got to read this. The title of the document is, Here, I st- Here We Stand, An Evangelical Declaration of Marriage. I would commend it to you. One of the things that document calls us to is this. We are called to love our neighbors regardless of whatever disagreements arise as a result of conflicting beliefs about marriage. We are called to live respectfully and civilly alongside those who may disagree with us for the sake of the common good. We are called to cultivate a common culture of religious liberty that allows the freedom to live and believe differently to prosper. In short, we are called to love one another. And when we love one another, they will see that we bear the marks of discipleship. But we not only are to love homosexual people, that's not the end of the story. We are called to move into the lives of these people and call them to repentance. Just like we call a heterosexual sinner to repentance. Al Mohler has stated often, I've heard him say this many times, we are all sexual sinners. We are all sexual sinners, and so we call homosexuals to repentance. We call heterosexual sinners to repentance. And here's the bottom line. Some will hate us. Some will reject us. Some will cast us aside. Some will call us bigots. Some will call us intolerant. But others will marvel at the beauty and the grace and the forgiveness of the Savior. Every sexual sinner must turn his or her attention to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, we finally, we model the gospel when we respond in a godly fashion when the day of persecution strikes. Paul the Apostle said something very interesting in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice he doesn't say if you desire to be a disciple, you might be persecuted. He says if you have a desire to live a godly life, just expect persecution. Expect it. One of my favorite men in church history is a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a a godly man. Polycarp was a man who, who knew, he, knew what he believed. He said what he believed. He preached what he believed. He was unwilling to compromise the truth. But there came a day when Polycarp heard that he was in danger. And so he actually went and, and hid out in a house for a season, knowing that there would come a day when he would be arrested and likely would die. And that's exactly what happened on this day is his friends came to him and they said, the soldiers are coming, Polycarp. They're coming today. And so he prepared himself for the arrest. And the men entered his home and Polycarp did something that I don't think many of us would have the courage to do. He said, before you arrest me, he says, it's dinner time and your men look tired and they look hungry. Would you allow me to make dinner 
for your men before you arrest me and take me to the arena and martyr me. And so the man in charge of this, this uh, brigade who would arrest Polycarp agreed. And they ate dinner at his table. And on that occasion, Polycarp began to pray aloud. And the soldiers ate in silence and listened as the old man prayed for them and the governor and the emperor. He thanked God for the gift of Jesus and for his long life of serving him. And he asked God to make him faithful in death and keep his church faithful when he was gone. Two hours later, Polycarp closed in prayer. Then the time came when they secured Polycarp and they led him to the arena. Polycarp looked directly into the governor's eyes. You want me to say away with the atheists? He turned and waved his hand over the bloodthirsty crowd. He said, these are the atheists. Away with the true atheists. The governor said, Polycarp, you don't understand. I'm trying to make this easy for you. Do you have any last words? And these words are etched in stone in church history. As he said this, for 86 years... I have been the servant of Christ, and he has done no wrong. How can I deny the king who saved me? Before they could light the fire, he began to speak again, and the mob quieted to hear his final words. O Lord God Almighty, he prayed, thank you for giving me the privilege of giving up my life for you today. And to share in the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Thank you for your promise of eternal life for both my soul and my body. Today, receive me as a sacrifice. I praise you for all things and glorify you now and forever through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See, we are called to model the gospel by responding in God-centered ways when the day of persecution strikes. Finally, a third Proposal, let me challenge you to marvel in a sovereign God. The Supreme Court decision, of course, did not take the living God by surprise. Christ is still on the throne. And if you look at Psalm chapter 11 and read through the end of the chapter, the psalmist says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test, eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then the final words of Psalm 11 say this. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I read a sermon just a few days ago by Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards says this in the sermon. At the day of judgment, there will be the most glorious display of justice of God that was ever made. Then God will appear to be entirely righteous toward everyone. The justice of all his moral government will on that day at once be discovered. Then all objections will be removed. The conscience of every man shall be satisfied. The blasphemies of all the ungodly will forever be put to shame and silence. And arguments will be given for the saints and the angels to praise God forever and ever. 
At the end of the day, we realize this, that the Supreme Court decision is not about civil rights. It's not about constitutional law. It's about a worldview battle. This is an ideological battle between worldviews. Paul addresses it in Romans 1. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Three or four days ago, Dr. John MacArthur wrote a letter to the alumni of Master Seminary. And a few words stand out, and I leave it with you and trust that it will encourage you. And some of this might even surprise you, but it is true nonetheless. He said this, Marriage is not the ultimate battleground. And our enemies are not the men and women who seek to destroy it. The battleground is the gospel. He says, be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics. That's what I referred to earlier earlier as the propensity of Christian people to be bombastic. He's telling us, don't be bombastic. Love people. Care for people. We never compromise the truth, but we care for people Around us. And so let me encourage you, let me challenge you with these three responses. One, make a crucial commitment. We stand strong on the biblical portrait of marriage between men and women. Second, model the gospel by entering the marketplace of ideas. How? With truth and grace. And finally, marvel in a sovereign God, the one who rules and reigns. You recall the words of Bruce Shelley, those very important words who said, Conformity, not distinctiveness, is the way to a trouble-free life. So the more the early Christians took their faith seriously, the more they were in danger of crowd reaction. May Christ's fellowship play a vital role in the days ahead in strengthening the foundations May we play an important role in building on biblical standards as they are mocked in our culture, as they are maligned in our culture. And may our love for the Savior who died on the cross propel us into the future by His grace and for His glory. And may we make a profound influence on our community as we love people around us, homosexuals, heterosexuals, idolaters, thieves, and liars. We are all sinners saved by grace. Let's pray together. Father, again, these are perilous times, and we ask that you would enable us to be a a God-centered, a gospel-centered, a Bible-centered people. Help us to never compromise the truth, but help us to also move into the marketplace of ideas with grace, to care for people, to be compassionate with people, to lead people uh, graciously and gently to the cross of your Son. God, these are days that are uh, filled with fear and filled with uh, uncertainty. But we remember what your word says. The Lord Jesus is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. 
As the old spiritual says, he has the whole world in his hands. May we remember these great truths as we continue our our pilgrimage to the celestial city together. For us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.